0: Today, I
1: have with me Kevin
0: Peterson. Kevin, can you go ahead and introduce yourself to our listeners?
1: <laughs> sure, Stephanie. I for, totally forgot the name of the show is Millennial Mental Health. I'm 57, but that's okay. <laughs> I'm, I was the last year of the boom, the baby boomers. So I hope they still pay attention to what I say. <laughs> oh, I sure hope
0: so. I think anyone can learn from any of the people that I have on the podcast, even if they're not millennials, like everyone needs mental health help
1: okay so my name is kevin peterson i'm a licensed marriage and family therapist Uh, i am the founder and the owner of the chronic hope institute and peterson family counseling i have offices in denver colorado and i have offices in jacksonville beach florida and i am the author of uh chronic hope parenting the addicted child and chronic hope families and addiction
0: okay well (laughs) thank you so much for for being on today Um, I guess we'll just kind of jump right in. So why don't you tell us about these two books? Um, What was your goal in publishing them and who can they help?
1: Absolutely. So the goal was, well, what, what was happening is that I opened my private practice in 2014 and literally the first day... What rolled into the office was families that, well, Colorado was kind enough to legalize uh, recreational marijuana that year. And, and so what was walking in the door is families that were like, we need help with fill in, our bl- fill in the blank, our 16-year-old, our 26-year-old, our 36-year-old, our child, our brother, our sister, our husband, our wife, who are struggling with addiction, and we don't know what to do. And and so I wrote both books based upon the experience of working with hundreds and hundreds of families struggling with how do we help and support our loved one and get them into uh, so sobriety or recovery? And then how do we take care of ourselves? So I think I answered both questions. Um, that's That's who it's for. It's also for clinicians, you know, because like we just talked about. Most clinicians took um, either zero or one class on substance abuse, and it probably wasn't very focused on codependency in families. It was focused on substance abuse. So that's, that's my market. That's who I'm trying to reach out to.
0: Okay, great. Yeah, I'm curious. I know that there's tons of support groups that exist is that usually something that you recommend as part of people's treatment i know a lot of times when i work with clients like getting them to go to these groups is half of the battle so yeah i'm curious if you have any suggestions around that
1: sure that's a great question um so sure there's lots of there's there's 12-step support groups there's faith-based support groups there's community support groups there's all sorts of different kinds um non-12-step support i mean there's just there's just plenty what I tend to do with my clients first is I have them read my books and um, I also have them read Codependent No More by Melody Beattie. And and then, ha- then I generally have them do the Codependent No More workbook. Um, and that's kind of a warm up. You know, I want them to really solidify and build the foundation of understanding what's going on and why and how and wh- who they are, where they're at before they're going to step into a meeting because it can be really daunting to ask somebody and say, I want you to go sit in front of a bunch of strangers and tell them your deepest, darkest secrets about what it's like in your home behind closed doors. You know, they're, they're generally not ready for that. And, and, and it can be a little traumatic for them. And, and so I try to warm them up with uh, spending some time with them myself and having them read some of the literature that tends to be, the seminal works in our industry, and then, um, and then, then I start saying, Well, hey, so guess what? There are actually other groups of people fighting the same battle, and I think you might now feel comfortable going. That, that to me, that's the more logical path.
0: Yeah, I remember in my graduate program, we had an assignment to go to two separate uh AA or NA meetings as a part of a course, and I just remember having no experience with this feeling like, wow, this is like a whole nother world that I just walked into. And it's very jarring for me. And I wasn't even there to seek support. So I can imagine for a family member who's struggling and gone through the trauma, like walking into those rooms, is probably really scary in the beginning.
1: Yeah, it is. And, you know, full disclosure, you know, I've been sober for 30 years. I got sober on May 5th, 1991. And I still continue to actively go to 12 uh, step meetings, both for my addiction and for my uh, what, we, what we call the family disease, you know, of codependency. Um, I grew up in a house of addiction. My mom was a prescription drug addict. And then I started using drugs and alcohol when I was 13. And then I got sober when I was 27. And then I went back to grad I and mean, I went to graduate school. Um, when I was 44. <laughs> and so I grew up in a house of addiction, I started using, I got sober, and I'm a mental health professional. So I like to think I have a very unique perspective, as opposed to someone who just took a class, you know?
0: Yeah, very fair. I know I worked in substance abuse for the first year of being a therapist and really felt like a fish out of water, right? Just because my experience yeah. was so limited to that one course in grad school, and then suddenly I'm surrounded by a mental health illness that I couldn't really relate to. And it was really, I guess, jarring um, for me. So I imagine oftentimes, unless you're going to a therapist who has a lot of experience in mental health and substance abuse, there could feel very, I guess, like, I don't know, the blind leading the blind almost. So like going to someone who's like highly trained in that super important.
1: Yeah, you know, it's I occasionally I get an opportunity to lecture at my graduate school or when I went to Regis or other schools. And I talk about that. And like I had one woman one time say, ask a question. And she's like, I'm really getting the idea that your opinion is that you have to be in recovery to be an effective counselor for someone who's struggling with substance abuse or codependency. And I said, well, let me ask you a question. And I said, it's gonna get personal, is that okay? (laughs) You know, and she's like, sure. I said, how old are you? And she's like, 40. I said, do you have any kids? She's like, yeah, I have two. I said, did you experience any postpartum depression? And she's like, yeah, with both of them. I said, great, why didn't you call me? I'm fully prepared to handle (laughs) it. You know, and she looked at me, and I'm like, "Cause I'm a guy. <laughs> it's okay. I'm not offended." And I said, "But it's the same thing. If you're, how could you possibly understand what it feels like to be an addict or an alcoholic or a codependent or a loved one or a family member?" If you haven't actually experienced the process and, and one of the things that people are searching for that are struggling with addiction or codependency is that connection of someone who's like, Oh no, I totally get it. And here's the solution. You know? Mm -hmm. So yeah, I think. Yeah.
0: I definitely think you kind of have to have a passion for it and also some experience, whether that's like directly or indirectly, um, in order to really serve your
1: clients in a way that's like super meaningful absolutely 100 percent. couldn't agree more you don't got to be in recovery from addiction but i guarantee you the most effective people tend to have some sort of direct personal experience with the situation and mm-hmm. and they've been there and they get it you know it's the you know it's the old fable the guy falls into a ditch and you know this guy walks by and says hey can you help me out and the guy's like i'm a priest and he writes some prayer and throws it down the ditch and He's like, that doesn't do me any good. And the next guy is a doctor, and the doctor gives him a prescription. And then he sees his buddy, and he's like, dude, you got to help me out. And he's like, okay. And he's like, move over. And he jumps in the ditch with him. And then he's like, what are you doing? Now we're both in here. And he's like, yeah, but I've been here before, and I know the way out. Follow me. You know? That's how we define recovery and helping each other. You know, we get it. We understand so, yeah, which yay. I guess goes back to
0: like the support groups and how important that is. And, you know, the sponsor um, yeah. aspect of all of the
1: 12 step programs. Absolutely. And let's be clear, we're not just talking about the addict, we're talking about the codependent, the family member, you know, someone mm-hmm. who's been battling this for ages is like, you know, what do I do? What do I do? You know, how do I make them get sober? Well, you don't. You know but what you can do is take care of the whoops big surprise (laughs) that that always be that's the first thing they always like i'm gonna bring my husband to you and you're gonna fix him and i'm like no you're not (laughs) and no i'm not um but what i can do is help you um, start holding your ground and setting your boundaries and saying so i love you um but I'm not willing to go down this path with you anymore. And so if you want to keep going down the path of addiction and alcoholism, that's fine. Go ahead. But uh, I'm not going with you and, and I will. But I will respect your choices. And that's that's what my family did to me in uh, 1990. They they sat me down basically and said or my my dad trapped me in a car for four hours driving in uh, from San Luis Obispo to Palo Alto, California. And he's like, Kevin, you're my only son, and I love you, but I don't believe a word out of your mouth. <laughs> you're an alcoholic and a drug addict, and you need help. And until you get that help, we're going to keep you at a distance. Yeah. And and they were serious, you know.
0: Yeah, I definitely think holding a hard line and hard boundaries with people is super important. So I think when you have those hard boundaries, like mm-hmm. people can, you know, you can. feel good about yourself and your choices and the other person has the opportunity to recover rather than continuing that like codependent relationship.
1: Absolutely. And let's be clear. I want to be super duper clear. We are not talking about the old school tough love concept because that's not what, that doesn't work. You know, Mm -hmm. the slamming the door on their face and, you know, on the coldest day of the year when they're in their flip flops and t-shirt and saying, don't ever, you're dead to me. No, that's not, no, that's not what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. What I'm talking about is saying, look, you know, like my dad said, you're my only son and I love you. But until you choose sobriety, we're going to choose to have some very big distance between us Mm -hmm. and and I'll respect your choices. You can keep doing whatever you want, but you need to understand that comes without the family support. And and let me tell you, I I tried every trick in the book, man. I was wheeling and dealing and he, he was just like... You know, and and as I like to say nowadays, no is a complete sentence. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, yeah, for sure, saved my life. It absolutely saved my life. I I credit to my father and my family that they were the ones that got saved my life. So no doubt about it. Yeah.
0: So speaking of, I guess, lives being saved through recovery. I imagine that unfortunately, there's a lot of um, people who don't get clean and end up in jail or end up in you know, horrible long-term facilities or, you know, death. I'm curious if you could share with us some statistics um, about those things.
1: Yeah, Yeah, last year was a record for the United States. Unfortunately, 93,000 people died of drug overdoses. Um, Drug, let me make sure I get my, I I know I have the numbers off the top of my head. Um, Drug overdose became the number one killer of people under 30 in 2011. It surpassed car accidents um, and, and, and has continued to just shoot up the charts. And, you know, the truly sad part is that, um, one of the things that's really important to me is being able to offer families a solution, right. That's, you know, you know, affordable or free or whatever, and just giving them as much information as humanly possible because, you know, most people, I mean, nobody's prepared for this. Nobody thinks, Oh, Hey, you know, my kid's a drug addict. What do I do? You know, it's not it's not something you wake up in the morning. And you're like, I can handle this. I know I, I know where to go to solve this problem. Um, and it's it's, you know, the other side, I mean, is that um, we have well, we have, a. you know, obviously we have an opiate em- epidemic going on. The DEA released a study a couple months ago called One Pill Can Kill. And, and that's a lot to do with last year's record numbers in the sense that what's happening is a fentanyl is being brought over from China, taken to Mexico and processed into pills that look like prescription pills and brought into the United States. And people are taking those thinking they're taking regular medication. I mean, they're still taking it recreationally, but they think they're taking regular medication and they're turning out they're taking fentanyl, which kills them. You know, and, and that's happening in record numbers. And, and so we, that, that's a huge issue. If you really, really, really want to get interested in what I'm talking about, there is a great uh, series right now called Dope Sick on um, Hulu, all about um, the advent of OxyContin and Purdue Pharmaceutical. And uh, it's, it's, it's hard to watch, but it is incredible. And it really explains why we are where we are.
0: Yeah. I want to say there was something similar that was on Netflix a while ago about like ADHD medication and the you know epidemic in regards to that. I don't know all the details, but I'm sure that would be very educational as well.
1: Yeah, I know what you're talking about. It's just not it's not popping into my head. But um, yeah, there's no doubt about it. I mean, we've we've gotten to be, you know, a very well, you know, I mean, you know, we've gotten to be a society that medicates everything you know, good, bad, or indifferent, we medicate it, you know, don't deal with it, don't handle it, medicate it. And, and, and that's the problem is, there's a percentage of the population that can't pull out of that, you know, there, there's a myth or a concept that addiction is um, a byproduct of mental health, you know, like, well, I have anxiety or depression, therefore, I self medicate, and I become an addict, That's not how it works. Addiction is something you have genetically. Now, you may have anxiety and depression and trauma, no questions asked, but that doesn't make you an addict or an alcoholic. People who self-medicate, of the people who self-medicate, there's a population, like a 10% of that population that cannot pull out by themselves, and they need help. And, And that's what we're talking about, is that that percentage of the population that cannot regulate or control drugs or alcohol on their own
0: yeah yeah I guess I'm curious if they've and I'm, you may not know the answer to this but like studies to identify like what kind of makes that ten percent different than than other people is it something neurologically is it something yeah I don't know you said
1: genetics but well yeah no no but i mean i've got i i definitely uh I have actually sat in on um neurologists and and, and neuroscientists that have identified the genes and said you know yeah, it's definitely, it's a coded gene. This is hmm. this is the predisposition, you know? And and uh, I, I'm not a doctor. I don't pretend to be a doctor. <laughs> I, I flunked every science class I ever took. <laughs> so sure. I sat there, you know, I nodded my head a lot. I'm like, well, that's really fascinating. I have no idea what this guy's talking about. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, so, I imagine pretend. that it helps is. take some of the shame too, because I know that's oftentimes like a huge cloud that kind of surrounds addiction and the families and the addict themselves is the the shame component. So I imagine knowing that helps at least a little bit.
1: Well, it does. I mean, and again, my focus is really the family, not so much the addict or the alcoholic. And for the family, every family I ever work with asks the same question, what did we do wrong? This is my fault. I caused this, you know, and it's always the litany of excuses and stories of, Oh, you know, and I always tell him, look, I want to be clear. It's not because he was bottle fed or breastfed. It's not because, I mean, you, I mean I've mean, i heard that before, by the way. It's not because you yelled at him or didn't yell at him or you spanked him or you didn't spank him or blah, 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 blah you know, all the stuff we, I, 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 he just is what he is, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, he and she, whatever, um, they, <laughs> to be politically correct. And, you know, what, whatever it is, that's, that's how it flows. You know, that's just the deal. And, and it's really, you know, it's the old chicken and the egg. And I got to tell you, my position is I don't care because we're here. So let's deal with it. Let, you know, I, and, and I mean, I guess it definitely, I'm not trying to diminish your question. Sorry, that came out wrong. That's okay. <laughs> you know, I adore you. So that's not where I was going. Um, but people spend a lot of time like trying to figure that out, you know? And it's like, well, you know, here's the deal it is what it is you know and 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 you've got someone in your family that's struggling so let's let's get help for them and for you and and mm-hmm. then we can figure out how we got here but you know it's like the fire department shows up at your house your house is on fire they plug in the hoses and before they turn the water on they're like hey how does this make you feel to watch your house on fire it's like dude put the fire out i don't care yeah. put the fire out you know and so, uh, you know, what I try to do is help people put the fire out and then make sure that we never have the fire come back. And And it turns out that's not just dealing with the addict. It's dealing with the family system as well, mm-hmm. you know, because the family – I always tell people you're not responsible for their addiction, but you are responsible for how you respond to it.
0: Yeah, yeah I imagine – it's a lot of crisis management up front right it's like let's get the fire out before we try to send in the investigators to figure out why the fire started right you wouldn't do that in a you know a situation like that <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly you're absolutely right you're absolutely right but a lot of times you know the families think they're actually helping by coming up with oh it's because of xyz and i'm like no I mean, those things might exacerbate the situation, being bullied or parents getting divorced or blah, 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 blah you know, whatever. Sure, those things exacerbate and might be a catalyst, but, but not everybody that has substance or not everybody that has mental health issues or has trauma turns to, to, to drugs or alcohol, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and so what we're talking about is people that are predisposed to solving their problems that way and then not being able to stop.
0: I was hoping that you can share with us why it's so valuable for parents or spouses or family members to be involved in a person's recovery or for their own sake.
1: Yeah, sure. No, that's a great question. So, you know, the thing is, we always say addiction is a family disease, right? it, it doesn't just affect the person, it affects everybody that loves them or everybody that's around them. And, and, and so what we have to do is acknowledge that, we, that, yes, we definitely want to help the person get sober and get to where they need to be. Um, but it's had such a lasting effect on the family. I mean, I guarantee you that the family has spent time, whether the person is 16 or 36, adjusting the family system to accommodate the behavior of the addict. And let's also be clear, this is generational. Okay. You know, and I mean, a lot of times the families that I work with, it they, kind of starts off with, there's no history of substance abuse or mental illness in my family ever <laughs> you know and and they believe that and it's okay i don't argue or fight with them or get mad mm-hmm. i'm like oh okay and then so we start to talk to and get to know each other they're like well you know there was weird uncle harold who you know you know <laughs> he he wasn't an alcoholic but he was in an institution i'm like okay and 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 so we start talking about you know uh the different roles family members have played and the history of the family member roles. And we start to identify and put together, Oh, okay. So they were accommodating this behavior and that's codependency instead of speaking up to it and saying, this is not okay. You're taking the entire family with you. And, and so, you know, at the the very least if someone's getting help and, or is, you know, struck going into recovery or going into treatment, we want to make sure that they're coming back to a changed family system. So at the very least, we want the family to engage to just solidify the ability of the addict to come back to an environment where it's not the same system. And I, I, I don't mean pouring out all the alcohol. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the way the family engages and talks to each other and treats each other. And, you know, no, no more people pleasing, no more enabling, no more secret keeping, no more cover stories. You know, Mm -hmm. we're going to start calling things out and we're going to start holding each other accountable across the board. And we can do it with love and compassion. It doesn't have to be done with a big frying pan, you know.
0: Yeah, I, I guess my hope would be as time moves on and people are more aware of mental health issues and are talking more about substance abuse, that these generational issues can hopefully resolve themselves or at least become less uh, frequent because it just seems like, like you were saying, like these issues exist, not just like it, within this family system, but the family system before that, and then possibly the family system before that. And it just continues to trickle down and create all of this like toxic communication and um, relationships.
1: Absolutely. And and I, I don't know that we can ever eliminate addiction or alcoholism. But what we can do is sort of identify it and codependency, we can identify it super quickly and start offering solution to that situation and being, hey, okay, so I notice that, you know, this, the, the behavior patterns of the system is such and such. So how about we start looking at this and taking some steps towards remedying that? And yeah, this is I did a, I did a nine news health fair one time sitting in a booth for, um, Alcoholics Anonymous. And the guy next to me was uh, a doctor from Kaiser and an older gentleman. And he, he, we just started chit chatting and he's like, you know, I got to tell you 70% of the people that I see struggle with some sort of, uh, alcohol or drug addiction. Or, and he was including cigarettes, you know, and, and he was like, and that's who ends up in the hospital. And I'm like, yeah, I don't doubt that he goes, this is definitely the largest epidemic in our society. like, yep.
0: Yeah. I'm curious. And I don't know if you know the research on this, but there's been a lot of talk about like legalizing like certain different drugs and supposedly creating less issues with like addiction and, decriminalizing things will have less people in jail and i don't yeah i just hear all of this you know from the news and they're starting they're offering the training for therapists if you want to learn how to like do microdosing with your clients and I'm thinking to myself, like, I don't know if I feel comfortable even after training, like just giving out psychedelics to my clients, you know, and I know there's, you know, pros and cons to this sort of argument for conversation, but it's just, yeah, I'm curious of your thoughts
1: on that. Oh, I have plenty of thoughts on that. Um, here, here's the deal. Um and, uh, I think that uh, there's always gonna be a percentage of the population that struggles with drugs and alcohol. And it's just the genetic makeup. Um, and, the, and and so those people are gonna struggle across the board no matter what. Legalizing it is not gonna change that, okay? Um, and, and so I'm not against actually legalization. I'm actually more in favor of what I would call decriminalization. Um, I mean, I literally was talking to a guy at dinner the other night who spent seven years in prison for, for nonviolent drug offenses. And I was like, what? And he's like, yeah, I got sentenced to like 46 years and I ended up only doing seven. And I was like, "What? did you have a gun? I mean, he's like, Oh no, no, that's our legal system. And he's like, so that's nuts, you know? And I mean, and, and, and then, you know, he, he should have been offered uh, a treatment environment you know as opposed to you know and it's i mean the funny part is for people that have a more conservative agenda it's cheaper to put someone into treatment than it is to incarcerate them you mm-hmm. know <laughs> you know and you have a better chance of them turning it around and actually paying taxes and so mm-hmm. silly me just math you know <laughs> and, uh, just math all I'm just talking about math that's all and um but but you know whether we legalize it or not um you know, and uh, that's one thing. And then you're talking about y- the use of psychedelics and ketamine and all that sort of thing. You know, I don't know. I'm not a scientist. And I don't pretend to be one. And I really have no idea. I don't think, um, I just, I think it's something you've got to be really careful about because uh, when you're talking about addicts, okay, um, the last thing they need is someone saying, oh, it's okay for you to use drugs, you know, that mm-hmm. just doesn't work for us. It's, uh, the thing I would love for people to grasp and understand that um, alcoholism and drug addiction is very much like being allergic to shellfish or strawberries. If you eat the strawberry or eat the, sel- the shellfish, you break out and you have, you know, an anaphylactic shock reaction, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. When I drink alcohol or I do drugs, my body has a reaction and that reaction is to get more and you know, more, 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 no matter what. And, and, and it's uncontrollable. And I'm not using that as an excuse or a get out of jail free card, quite the opposite. I have to be held completely accountable to take responsibility for myself, you know, mm-hmm. but it, it, you know, it's not, it's not a lack of self will. It's not because of traumatic events. It's not because of who knows what it's this is who I is. I always tell people being an addict or alcoholic, it's like being pregnant. You either is or you isn't, you know? (laughs) know, It's a a binary solution (laughs) and, and, you know, you're one or the other.
0: But yeah, it is something that I think people maybe are going to need a lot of education on, again, going back to this, like a psychedelic thing, like, yeah, supposedly the training's like 150 hours, but that even to me doesn't feel like enough time to really be able to learn everything there is to learn about prescribing someone psychedelics and knowing all of the questions to ask and all the risks there are and all of these things.
1: Yeah, that's, uh, out of my realm. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. Pass. <laughs> Next question.
0: <laughs> well, I guess to maybe to wrap some things up, if you can maybe share some information about what you're doing and what you have going on, and where people can find
1: you. Yeah. Sure. So my website is uh, chronichope.us. Um, and you know, we have, like I said, we have offices in Denver. We have offices in Jacksonville beach, Florida. We also do what's called family case management, which we can do anywhere in the country. And we, we have, you know, our entire staff is prepared to do that as well. So if, if you are struggling with someone, uh, in your family system, uh, that you think needs help, um, that's what we're here for. We're also right now offering, um, both of my books, um, on ebook for free. And, and, um, the link is, uh, you know, us backslash, I want to say free ebook, but hold on. Now now you caught me off guard. We'll
0: also put it in the show notes too. So people can see it in in the social media posts in case like, you know, saying it out loud and you don't have a pen to write it down.
1: that would be a good idea. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 and you can always go to my website and just email me. Um, We have a YouTube channel. We have a podcast. There's a ton of videos. There's a ton of interviews and, and here, so my goal Stephanie is to give as much of this information away for free um, Mm -hmm. to as many families as humanly possible. I mean, I, you know, my practice is doing well. It's been doing well. I mean, the, people always say, oh, "Well, what do you do? I'm like, oh, I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist. Oh, really? What do you specialize in? Families that struggle with addiction. And, and they're like, how's that? And I'm like, well, the good news is business is great. You know, and, but the bad news is business is great, you know, mm-hmm. and it ain't going anywhere. Um, so I, my goal is to try to help as many families as possible and give away as much information. I just give it away. Here, just take it. Take the books. Watch the videos. And, and then if you still need help, let me know. In the next couple of weeks, we're going to actually start um, selling an online video uh, training program for families, which I think is going to start at like $47. It's going to be very affordable and it's on your own time do video on demand. And, and, and I do, Oh, I have a Facebook group um, called the Chronicle Institute. And there's, there's a group within that where I do lives, Facebook lives and answer questions and do ask me anything. And so I just want to be able to give people as much help as humanly possible, as quickly as possible is really what it comes down to. And, you know, live at the beach. So, you know, (laughs) (laughs) well,
0: I'm sure everyone appreciates your, you know, all of the wisdom that you provide them. And also I'm glad that you get to live at the beach while giving them the the wisdom that you do.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, you know, my wife and I love it here and we have three Boston Terriers, Bert, Blanche and Stella. And they love it here too. And Oh, see you on cue. (laughs) Yes. My dogs are also barking. (laughs) That's awesome. And, uh, but yeah, I appreciate, I appreciate the opportunity. It's great to see you and I always love talking to you.
0: Yes. I appreciate you, you coming on and I enjoyed our conversation and hopefully everyone can find you on your social medias. Like I said, I will post everything. in the show notes, as well as in the social medias, when uh, this podcast goes live.
1: Yeah, we're on Instagram. We're on Facebook. We're on Twitter. We're on soon to be on TikTok when I figure out how to do that. <laughs> well, good luck with that
0: one. I'm not on TikTok. <laughs>
1: uh, you know, all the cool kids are. <laughs> yes. We'll see.
0: Well, thank you again, Um, and hopefully we can catch up again soon.
1: It's my pleasure. I'll look forward to talking to you again.
0: Okay, bye.